This morning, if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to read several verses in just a moment from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1. Um, Charity mentioned a while ago that um, she met Jesus uh, one Friday night at, at a most excellent way meeting, and, and it's, it's just really cool when you hear somebody give that kind of testimony or uh, you're able to uh, recall those kinds of things. We've been on, on vacation the last couple of weeks, and coming home, I had the opportunity to take Cricket to the place where, um, as an 11-year-old boy, I met Jesus. Um, I, I grew up and, and uh, went to a very small little church uh, west of Fort Worth uh, called Agnes Baptist Church. Route 1, Box 1, Agnes, Texas, you know. Uh, very small. We were not, we were not a mega church. We, we were a little congregation. Um, uh, so little, in fact, that uh, you know the scripture that says many are called but few are chosen? We kind of figured God put that in the Bible just for us. Um, we had a t-shirt with that scripture on it. Many are called, but few are chosen, Agnes Baptist Church. We had to take turns wearing the t-shirt, but we had one, you know. But there are advantages to growing up in a little church like that. Um, wasn't, every, wasn't every congregation that could hold a deacon's meeting in the cab of the preacher's pickup, but we did. Usually on the way to the deer lease or something, you know. Uh, I'll never forget the year we got a new box of communion bread. That was a big deal for us. One, one, we opened that box and, and, and one of the deacons looked at our pastor and he said, Preacher, that box would get us all the way to the rapture. <laughs> you can do that with unleavened bread. You know, you can kind of save that up. Don't try that with the fruit of the vine. I don't have time to go into it, but just take my word for it. If you leave the Welch's grape juice in the fellowship hall too long, you go from a Baptist to a Catholic service, and it's, it's not good. It's, it's really not. Your attendance goes way up, but it's not good. It's not. But growing up in that small little church really did leave some indelible marks on me. Uh, and, and like I said, the foundational things that I learned there, um, I hope, you know, stay with me forever. But I have to admit, the older I get and the more that God allows me to see, um, I also grew up with the impression that the way we did church back then was the way church was supposed to be done. You know, I mean, you go to Sunday school and you go to preaching and then you go to training union and you go to preaching again and on Wednesday night you go to prayer meeting and you sing the first, second, and third verses or first, second, and last verses from three hymns uh, and you sing just as I am at the invitation. That's, that's what's church. That's what you do, you know. That was, that was, and you read from the 1611 version of the King James Authorized Bible. 
And as I got older, God began to show things to me. And one of the things I remember distinctly one night as I was talking to him about the whole concept of ministry and what I was supposed to do and, you know, uh, where I was supposed to plug in because I didn't fit the conception that I had of what ministry was. I, I, I was the square peg trying to get into the round hole and, and it wasn't like what I grew up with and I didn't feel like I'd been called to those kinds of things and I struggled with that for a long, long time. And I remember distinctly God saying one night, do you think I'm really limited to your experiences? Do you think that's all the creativity that I have? And from that point forward, God was good to me and began to show me that ministry is a big, big word and has a lot of components to it and has a great deal of diversity to it. And the, the text that we're going to look at this morning shows God basically doing the same thing, but in two totally different ways. And so let's, let's read that. We're going to read the first 17 verses of Luke chapter 9. Luke writes, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch uh, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see them. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a, a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. And he welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who, were needed, who had need of healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men, Luke says parenthetically, were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them, and then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they ate all and were, sat and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. I don't know about you, but when I 
when I first read this particular section of Luke's gospel, it seems like um, these two events may not go together because initially we're talking about Jesus empowering 12 individual people to go and do very specific things. Uh, scripture says in villages and in homes, this was a very personal aspect of ministry. And then we conclude what we read this morning about Jesus being surrounded. Scripture says by 5,000 men, that's, that's all they counted back then. It's, it's probably very conservative to say that the crowd that day was close to 20,000 people. There's a great deal of difference between sitting in somebody's living room one-on-one -on -one with them and then all of a sudden being with 20,000 people. And I think that Luke, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, puts these two accounts together to remind us just how creative God really is and just how there is no limit to what he does and how he can do things in many, many different ways and in different forms. And that's, that's what I want us to look at for just a second this morning. I think even though these are you know, completely different events, they've got some similarities. And, and I want us to talk about those. And the first one is that um, God's timing is evident. God's timing is evident in both of these stories. Because before we get to this part of, of, his, uh, of the journal of his ministry here on earth, God does a lot of things, okay? He's already encountered the woman at the well. He's, he, he's already performed many, many miracles on an individual basis. But if you remember, one thing that he normally does when he performs one of those miracles up until this point is he tells the person, now don't tell anybody. Oh, don't, 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 don't say anything to anyone. If he, if he instructs them otherwise, it's usually go and tell a specific person, go and tell your priest or something like that. But many times up to this point, Jesus keeps his ministry uh, almost secretive. Um, he, he doesn't want um, things to come out. His first miracle, okay, when he turns the, the water into wine at the, uh, at the wedding, you know, his mother comes to him and says, we had a wine. And that's all she said. But that's not all she meant. No, you know how that goes when your mother says something, okay? Jesus was no exception. He knew what she meant. We're out of wine, and you can do something about it. And Jesus even offers just a, a tad of protest when he says, my time has not come yet. And I just got a feeling his mother folded her arms and shook her head, because that's what moms do. But even then, even to his own mother, his own family, Jesus would talk about, his time not being ready. But we get to chapter 9 of Luke, he's going to blow the lid off of this thing. It's time. He wants people to know, those who are for him and those who are against him, he wants people to know who he is and where the disciples have obtained the power that 
uh, they're going to demonstrate. And when he gets to the point where he's feeding the 5,000, um, he does nothing. He cloaks nothing. He, he, he makes nothing uh, uh, be less pronounced uh, like he used to. And I think the message to us in both of these illustrations is that when we are not in God's timing, it's not going to work. So, so many times in my life, I've had great ideas that didn't work. I bet you have too. You see, it's imperative that we understand that God sees things in a much different lens and from a much greater perspective than we do. And no matter what he impresses upon us to do, if we're not in step with him and if we're not in sync with him and if we don't do it when he's ready to do it, not when we're ready to do it, not when it's convenient for us or when we think we've got things in line or when all the other factors begin to um, fall into sequence for us. Oh, it has to be the timing that God ordains. And he says, now I am ready. Now I'm ready. Because when he sends out the 12 disciples, I think you had some mixed emotions there. I think you got guys like Peter who'd been chomping at the bits for two and a half years. Let's go. Let's go, Lord. I'm ready. Send me. Okay? Just, 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 just give me all of, of the Middle East. I'll take care of it. Had other guys that were very reserved and, and, and very nervous about being uh, apart from Jesus whatsoever. But it wasn't until this particular time that Jesus does exactly that. He sends them out. He, gives, he ordains them with certain abilities that they had not had before. I just get this picture, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be proven wrong one of these days, but I get the picture before this happened of them sitting around the campfire at night or however they did things back then and Peter practicing to be God. You know, hey, did you see Jesus heal that guy today? Hey, I think I got it. Hey, you know, first he touched him and then he prayed. No, 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 no. I think he prayed first and then he touched him. I've got it, though. I'm working on it, you know? But it wasn't God's time for Peter to be able to demonstrate those things. We as a people have to be in step and have to be in sync with God, and we can't do that apart from prayer. We can't do that apart from um, divorcing ourselves of our own agenda and our own time frame and understanding and recognizing uh, that God's time is perfect, and we have to wait on him. I think it's interesting, too, that God uses two completely different techniques to accomplish um, salvation of people and healing of people and meeting the needs of individuals. The first one, as we said earlier, is very, very personal. God says, um, go out, heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff. No bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Don't take anything with you. Now, if you're like me, that sounds pretty good. 
Because when, when I travel, I don't like to take stuff. I, I really don't. I don't like to pack. I don't like to carry it into the hotel. You know, I just, I don't. I just like to get in the car and go. I'm telling you this morning, with all due respect, my wife could not have been one of these 12 people. Because with her, there's a very fine line between packing and moving. <laughs> we, were, we were on vacation. We did a great American road trip. We went, to, um, we went to Yellowstone. But before we went to Yellowstone, we went to South Dakota to, to see... Um, Mount Rushmore, and Cricket's thing is always, we might want something to drink, and my thing is, then we'll buy it when we get there. No. No, we have industrial strength Yeti coolers that we, that we pack and we fill with stuff, and we take that just in case. And we're in South Dakota, and South Dakota's a beautiful place. They got a lot of neat stuff there. Uh, something spills in the cooler. So we have to go to the car wash and wash out the cooler in the rain. I don't have quarters. I stick the $1 bill that I have into the machine. I get my four quarters. I go back to the little place where you put the four quarters in, and you have to have 12 quarters. The only thing else I have is a $20 bill. Just my luck. It accepts $20 bills. So now I'm walking, holding quarters like this in the rain. On vacation, trying to put them in the machine, dropping all over the place. She's got the wand spraying Diet Coke cans. And like I said, South Dakota is a really neat place. They got a lot of cool stuff. But you know, one of the things they have in South Dakota? They have Coke machines. You can buy one there and not have to go through any of that. But that's not the way we do it. Hmm. I digress. Why did Jesus tell the disciples, don't take anything with you? He had to prove to them and he had to show them that he was the source of all their needs. It wasn't anything that Peter had practiced to be able to do that was going to make him successful on this journey. Was it anything that they could accumulate or anything that, that they could do in and of themselves? They were completely and solely dependent upon the grace and the will of God. And when we attempt anything for him using anything else, we're going to be disillusioned and disappointed. He... Uh, he tells them, if people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Why did he say this? That's almost discouraging. 
Why did he tell them that? I think Jesus wanted them to know from the very, very beginning, you're not going undefeated. Not everybody's going to accept what I've sent you to do. Everything's not going to be easy. It's not all going to fall into place. And I think sometimes when we really get on fire for God, I, I, I refer again back to the, uh, the transitional home that Charity's been working for or working at for so long. And, you know, we, we just had uh, some, some bumps in the road and we couldn't find the right people. And it took longer than we thought we were, than it should take. And sometimes when we're in that situation, we begin to second guess and to doubt whether or not God called us to do this in the first place. You see, even in the first century when Jesus was on the earth, this was not a perfect world. And there were people who would undoubtedly reject the gospel. But that did not make the disciples exempt from going. And the same is true for us today. We will have hardships. We will have things that don't work out the way that we want them to go. But Jesus instructed these people to go. And you know what? They, they went without some of the preparation that they really thought they had to have. When Jesus sent them out that day, Peter was still telling everybody he had this. He was still talking a big game, and inside his internal dialogue was saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Thomas was still pessimistic. Probably from the, at the very moment that Jesus sends them, Thomas is still thinking, this is not going to work. Poor Matthew. He was scared to death. Because Matthew had collected taxes from these people. Matthew was not welcome. He had a past that was going to follow him into each new home. And it scared him. But he still had to go. And Jesus overcame all of those things, all of those fears, all of those inabilities, all of those past mistakes and, and broken relationships these guys took with them into this very difficult task. And Jesus overcomes all of that. They get back and um, I think it's almost funny that um, Jesus uh, begins this next phase by, by telling them that they're going to get away. They're going to go off and, and have some respite, some seclusion here. And it says very quickly the crowds begin to follow. Well, Jesus knew those crowds were going to follow. He did that on purpose. The first thing you know, there's 20,000 people or more. It's a whole lot different scene than what they've been used to the last several days or weeks or months or however long they've been out doing this personal evangelism, very intimate ministry. Now they're in an arena setting. They're in a stadium setting. 20,000 people. Worse than that, it's 20,000 hungry people. And there is no concession stand. And they, they, they come to Jesus and they, and they tell him, you got to send these folks home. 
you got to love them. It's time to eat. We, you you, you got to get rid of them. Jesus says something kind of peculiar. He says, well, why don't you feed them? And then look at what they say to him in response. They spend the next few minutes explaining to Jesus that they can't do this. Like he didn't know. Isn't that what we do sometimes? Isn't it really, isn't that what we do? God puts something in front of us. It seems a little out of our wheelhouse, a little bit off of our radar, out of our comfort zone, and we come back to God and say, here's why this is not a good idea, Lord. Moses did it, didn't he? he, he he's there at the burning bush, and, and, he, and God tells him, you've got to go back to Egypt, and you've got to convince the Pharaoh to, to let the children of Israel go. And so Moses goes into this little dissertation about how he's not going to be good at that. First of all, like I'm wanted there. You know, they got, they got posters on me. Secondly, I don't talk real well. Uh, we're going to have to do something else, Lord. Like God didn't already know that. We've got to understand that when God calls us to something, he's well aware of the obstacles before we ever begin. He completely understood that these guys didn't have the food or the means to feed thousands and thousands of people that day. One of the other gospel writers uh, talking about this particular uh, episode um, talks about how much money it would take to feed all those people. And, and um, I've heard it said that you're, you're talking like forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in today's money just to make a dent in what it would take to feed people there. And I said, we don't have that, God. God knows what we don't have. And he doesn't care. I don't know how to say that any more eloquently. God knows what we don't have, and he does not care. Our responsibility is to be obedient. Our responsibility is to do what he's called us to do regardless of any other situation or any other details that we can um, drum up. How are we going to feed all these people, Lord? It cannot be done. It absolutely cannot be done. It was impossible to do. And then he does it. Isn't that just like God? It's impossible to do. We've exhausted everything that we can think of. I'm to the end of my rope and to the end of anything that I can add uh, to this situation in and of myself. And then he takes care of it all. He says to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Okay? That's got to make them nervous. Go tell these people, hey, y'all need to gather up here now, okay? No, that's too much. You go over here. All the, the uh, human emotional things that have to be running through their mind. And then, of course, we know what he does. He, he, he blesses uh, the little provision that's there. And the people eat, and they're satisfied. They're full. And how many baskets were left? 
or 12, right? I've heard real preachers say that uh, those represented the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't think so. I think there was one for each disciple who said, we can't do this. I think there was an object lesson for each one of those guys that had to pick up that basket and go, wow, I never would have believed it. I think they were for those people. That's why there were 12. God does something in both of these, both of these stories, which is to reach the hearts of individuals. Sometimes he does it in a very intimate setting and sometimes he does it in this really huge, huge way. But the third thing that both of these situations have in common is the same carpenter from Nazareth. You see, apart from Jesus, our most simple endeavor or our most grand endeavor is merely a waste of time. Apart from Jesus, as even though these things are dramatically different in and of themselves, apart from Jesus, neither one of them works. But when he's in the middle of it, there is no limitation. It's, it's very, very cliche-ish to say, but it's true. There's absolutely nothing that he can't do. And, and I say that this morning to encourage us, but I also say that to, to remind us that when the Holy Spirit begins to talk with you and I on an individual basis, and he leads us into something that hasn't been done before, or doesn't quite fit under a particular umbrella of ministry. It's a little against the conventional way of, of doing things. We gotta remember these stories. We gotta remember these examples. And let's don't be like the disciples and try to come up with enough excuses to get out of it. Let's be the kind of people it says, Lord, I don't understand it. And I got to be honest with you, it scares me to death. But if that's what you want to do, I'll go. I'm on board. And then watch him do what only he can do. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and your illustrations of things, God, that sometimes seem diametrically opposed to one another and yet just convey exactly who you are. And God, we're just grateful today that you don't limit um, the ways that you want to encounter people with the gospel to something that we as, as mere people can contrive. You do what you want to do, Father, and you, you color outside the lines and you run out of bounds and you, 
you do all the things that we think don't make a lot of sense sometimes. And it's those very things that make a eternal impression on so many people. And we're grateful for that. And I just pray, God, for the strength and the confidence that when you call us individually, and God, when you call First Baptist Church Huntington, Texas, to do something that maybe we haven't done before in the past, that looks different, that sounds different. The God that, that we don't run from those things, but that we gravitate toward it because we know we serve a different God. We serve a God without limitations. and God, we want to be where you are, so we ask you for uh, the help that we'll need as you lead us down those roads. Father, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, I pray that today would be the time when they're convicted of the Holy Spirit and they would come and talk to our pastor or to anyone else, Father, and, and uh, secure that in their lives and then begin that awesome, incredible, uh, sometimes uh, unworldly journey with you. All these things we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.